Let's pray together. Lord, we do turn to your word now and we pray that you would send your spirit. We want to be instructed by it. We do not want the lies that our own hearts and the world tell us to reign supreme over our lives so that we are distorted and disjointed. But rather we want our lives to be straightened out for Christ and lived under the righteous reign of his rule. And so we pray that your word would be the great instructor this morning and that we would submit to it in faith and hope and love. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Our scripture passage this morning is Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. And you'll find that on page 848 of the Pew Bible. Page 848 of the Pew Bible. You recall that the various parties of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes are now each taking their turns trying to refute and trap Jesus. Last week we saw how the Pharisees joined together with some of the Herodians and tried to trap him by asking him a question related to taxes. They failed utterly in their attempt. Jesus was much too wise for them, and so the Sadducees have said, well, it's not right to send a boy to do a man's job. We'll do the job ourselves. And so they gather together and conspire and now have a scenario to present to Jesus to trap him as well. Let's begin reading here in verse 18. And Sadducees came to him who said that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he had died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. And the seventh, seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. What is your expectation about eternal life? What vision do you have of the afterlife? Maybe if you are asked on the street that particular question, what would you say to a non-Christian who asks you, what will eternal life be like? There are many things that Christians do know. We know that it's going to be a better place. We know that our treasure is in heaven. We know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We don't always have a clear picture and understanding of what eternal life will look like. But if you ask most people on the street, most people actually in the world have some vision of the afterlife, have some expectation 
of an afterlife. That life doesn't just end when you die physically. And there's no wonder that that's the case because as we're told in the book of Ecclesiastes that God has put eternity into the hearts of man. That is to say, we are people who can contemplate an afterlife. And in fact, what has been woven into the fabric of humanity is that we desire it, we long for it. There's something that seems so unnatural about death. It doesn't seem to be right. And that's because it's not the way God wants things to be. As those who are made in God's image, we, we not only have the capacity to long for he- or to, to think about heaven, but the desire to long for it as well. Now, some don't see it that way. You may even know people who believe that there is no afterlife. A couple of notable figures in the last century. One, Carl Sagan. He was the author of Cosmos, notable figure in the scientific world and space ex- exploration. Here's what he said. I would love to believe that when I die, I will live again that uh, some thinking, feeling, remembering part of me will continue. But I know of nothing to suggest that it is more than wishful thinking. Bertrand Russell, who was a contemporary of J.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, a brilliant mind, felt the same way. I believe that when I die, I shall rot, and nothing of my ego, that is my inner person, will survive. Sadducees had a similar sort of view. In fact, Mark is the one who tells us here that they say there is no resurrection. They believe that basically when you die, that is it. The lights are turned off and there is nothing else. And so they're taking this as a particular opportunity to trap Jesus. Here they present Jesus with a particular scenario. Verse 19, they come to Jesus saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, what's behind this is what was called the Levite marriage. It was actually a practice long before the law of God regulated it, but it was a practice in which if a man was married and he died before he had any offspring, his brother had the duty of marrying his wife to produce an offspring so that his name would continue. And within ancient Israel, according to the law of God, it was also so that his inheritance in the land would remain secure. Without uh, any offspring, his inheritance in the land would go to someone else. It was a picture, a way for God to say, your inheritance in the eternal glory that is to come is secure. And through the Levite marriage, that was supposed to be a signpost to that. But what they're trying to do now is use the law of God against Jesus. And so they present a scenario. Seven brothers. The first took a wife. He died and left no offspring. So the second married her. He died as well, leaving no offspring. And the third, and so on, and so on. None of them left an offspring. And the question is put to Jesus then, in the resurrection, supposing it's true, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? What they've given to Jesus is basically an absurd scenario to try to show the absurdity of the, res- of the resurrection. 
Because if you can't answer the question about whose uh, wife will she be, then maybe there is no resurrection after all because God would certainly not create a law that he could not carry through all the way into the resurrection. And so they're trying to put before Jesus some scenario that will trip him up and trap him. Jesus' response is this. Is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. They know neither the Scriptures nor do they know the power of God to raise the dead. Now, friends, this is something that we need to be clear about as well. If we're going to have a right expectation, a right vision about what is to come in glory. Now, you might, might wonder, well, what difference does that make for my life now? Why is that so important for a Christian to know? Well, let me give you several things. There's only so many ways to look at the afterlife. There are three major ways to look at it. One, what we might refer to as annihilationism. Just like the Sadducees, or Carl Sagan, or Bertrand Russell. That after this life, there is nothing. And therefore, there's nothing that I'm living towards. And because of that, the implication for the Sadducees was that what they were living for was this life. To get everything out of this life that they could possibly get from it. They were in league with the Romans. They had been put in power by the Roman government. And they delighted in it. They loved the power, the position, all the fringe benefits that came from it. And so you see, if you're the kind of person who says, well, there's nothing after this life, then you're one of those people who says, he who dies with the most toys wins. And I better try to draw everything from this life that I possibly can. Now, the second way of looking at it is this. Escapism. This came primarily in the Western world from Plato. That there's a way of looking at the cosmos that says the material world is evil. There's something bad about it. And what we need to do is escape to the heavenly realm, to the spiritual realm. And if that's the case, if that's what we believe, then, well, who cares what we do in this life? Why are we striving for anything? It's all going to burn up anyway. Let's just escape to heaven. And by the way, this is probably the viewpoint that most Christians have, that my final destiny is actually heaven. And I'm here to tell you that's not the case. It's a stop along the journey but it's not the final destination for those who are in Christ. To somehow live in a disembodied existence, a spiritual existence in heaven. Some people even view it as we're sitting on the clouds and we're playing our harps. I don't know why we're playing harps. None of us love to play harps in the present life. Why would we want to play harps in the life to come? But the point is, is that if you want to escape this world, You'll never live for this world in the sense of trying to redeem this world. And that's the third view, is the biblical view of redemption. Redemption is about buying something back, reclaiming it for someone. 
God's creation is His. He made it good and He wants it back. And the whole purpose of salvation so that He can reclaim a creation for Himself and a people for Himself who will dwell within that creation. That's the promise that we are given. In Romans chapter 8, this glorious chapter, there's a picture of what is to come. Paul says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In other words, it's under a curse. It doesn't function the way that it's supposed to. But he's done this in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now we have a vision of what this is going to look like. In Revelation chapter 21 and 22, which comes from Isaiah 65 and 66, there's this glorious picture of a new heaven and a new earth, a new physical reality. It's not new in the sense that it's an altogether different earth, altogether different universe, altogether different cosmos. But new in the sense of being remade, renewed, to be what God gloriously intended it to be. See, the end is not to go to heaven. The end is actually for heaven to come here and to remake this place so that we can live here in glory, for all of eternity. Eternal life is a, you might say, this world reality. Not as we understand it today, more glorious and better than we can understand it today. But yet it's on this earth that we will live forever and ever. And this is the horizon that Christians ought to be looking towards. So that if people asked you on the street, what's your vision of eternal life? That's what you would tell them. That one day I will dwell here with God and with His people in a remade world for all of eternity and enjoy the pleasures of knowing God. And so our hope today is in the resurrection because it's the first fruits of what is to come for everybody who believes in Jesus and we hope in this direction for two reasons here's the first because as Jesus says we hope because we know the scriptures that was the problem that the Sadducees had had they did not know the scriptures this is a basic quality for the Christian that we know the scriptures that our lives are saturated by them that we know them through and through so that we know our God, we know His works, and we know what He has planned for us in glory. You know, sometimes questions arise in our minds. We have questions. Maybe they're about God. Maybe they're about life. Maybe they're about the Scriptures. Maybe it's about the life to come. And we wonder about those things. And we think, I, I should investigate those things. I should find a, a real answer to them. And yet we sort of put that question on the shelf and we never actually do anything with it. And what I'm telling you today is to don't fall into the trap of the Sadducees who didn't know the Scriptures. Pull them off the shelf. Dive into them. 
find resources. There are more than enough resources in our church library to use to look things up and find out where does the Bible talk about eternal life? Where does it talk about resurrection? Where can I go to get a picture of what I can expect in glory? Because what you need to consider is that those promptings, those questions that you have come from the Spirit. He is the one who teaches us. He's the one who searches all hearts. Don't frustrate the work of the Spirit in your life. But rather pursue the promptings that He brings to you. So that you would know the Word better. Now Jesus sought to teach the Sadducees the Scriptures here. And He says to them in verse 26, As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, this is a strange place to go prove the resurrection, isn't it? The Old Testament has many references to the resurrection. Why does Jesus choose this passage? Well, primarily because the Sadducees didn't receive all of the Old Testament as the Word of God, but rather the first five books of Moses. And this particular passage is taken from the book of Exodus, the burning bush. And what God says in that passage is that I am the God of Abraham. Not I was the God of Abraham, but I am. Abraham still is. Isaac still is. Jacob still is. And my promises to them are not yet fulfilled. I am still their God. They are still my people. So yes, there is an afterlife Jesus says. But if we ask the question, what do the Scriptures teach about the resurrection life that we will live when Christ returns and raises the dead? Let me say two things. One, we'll be raised with renewed bodies. Renewed bodies. This is what Paul meant in Romans chapter 8, verse 23. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The redemption of our bodies. Just as Jesus was bodily raised from the dead, those who are in Him by faith will be raised from the dead to a new bodily existence. We don't know exactly what that's going to look like. Will you have the same nose, the same eyes, the same hair? I'm not sure. The Bible doesn't exactly tell us. But it gives us a few hints of what that will be like. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is the primary chapter on this. I would encourage you to read through it. So is it, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable your bodies our bodies will be sown in the ground so to speak like a seed but they will be raised imperishable so that you see there is both continuity with your body now and discontinuity the same between the seed and the plant it will be your body that's raised you may not like your body now one day it will be raised and it will be raised imperishable. Now that's a glorious hope for people, isn't it? 
You know what it's like for your body to feel bruised and broken, broken down even at times. And one day you'll be given a glorious body that will live forever and forever. The question is, why? Why are you given a glorious new body? It's because of this. You'll be raised for a whole new purpose. Or I should say a renewed purpose. God's purposes through humanity were never accomplished in Adam. He was to do what? Rule and subdue the earth? He was to multiply and fill it with image bearers of God who would reflect God's glory and serve Him. Adam failed. Jesus has come to win that back for us. And we will then have a renewed purpose with a brand new imperishable body to live in this world that is made new and glorious to fulfill that same purpose that was given to Adam. So that for all of eternity, you and I will rule and subdue the earth for Jesus. And we'll be fit for it too. With all the wisdom necessary, with the physical bodies necessary to do all that He's asked. So what do we do now? Do we just wait for that day? Do we just hope for it? No, says Paul. He tells us what we are to do in 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The people who understand that they're going to be raised want to labor and work for the Lord now. Why? Because you know that what you do in this life, in some sense, the good works that we do now carry over into glory. He says they are not in vain. Everything that you do for God's glory now, He will somehow translate into the life to come. Now, I have no idea exactly how He's going to do that. We don't know what works of art will carry over. Or what music that we sing today, we will still sing in that world. Or what political structures. Or what businesses. Or what talents you possess in this life will carry over into glory. But God says, whatever you do for me will never be done in vain. It's sort of like a, an, a master artist who wants to make this glorious masterpiece. And so what he does is commission artists from around the world. He doesn't show them the full blueprints, but he says, now I want you to make one piece that's going to be part of this. And so those various individual artisans, they labor and they try to make their piece as best that they can. They know not how it's going to be used, how it's going to be fitted together. And maybe they even die before the whole project is finished. But somehow the master is going to take all of those various pieces and pull them together and make a glorious masterpiece. You see, it's the people who hope for the resurrection who are the people who invest in this world not so that we can draw everything out of it that we can, but so that we can fashion it for God's glory in every way that we possibly can. 
Now there's one other thing. Not only do we know the Scriptures, we also know the power of God. That's what Jesus refers to here. He says, you do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God, but those who know Christ already know the power of God, don't you? You know the power of God to come and make your heart alive so that one day uh, you despise God, you wanted nothing to do with Him, and then all of a sudden there's a new affection for Him and you're being drawn to Him. You're convicted over your sins because you see they displease God. Now there's something new living inside of you and it's the Spirit of Christ dwelling within you. It's a new power within you. We as Christians already know the resurrection power of Jesus. But there's a power yet to be experienced, Jesus says. When he says you do not know the power of God, he's, he's referring back to the dilemma presented by the Sadducees that they thought that God's power somehow was too inept to handle this dilemma that they presented to Jesus. Jesus shows that it's greater than they imagined. And what he says in verse 25 is this. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. In other words, husband and wife in this life will not be married in the life to come, but rather will be like angels in the sense that we won't be married. Now, I'll just tell you the first time that, that I really studied this, it was in seminary, and I remember coming home from class and talking with Sally about it, and she was quite discouraged at the time. I'm sure after a dozen years now, uh, since that particular point, she's probably changed her tune about living with me for all of eternity. But what does it mean? What does it mean? Why will we not be married in the new earth? Is it because we're not supposed to have relationships that are that intimate and that close? No, it's just the opposite. It's because every relationship that we will have will be so perfectly intimate and close. There'll be no need for marriage. Marriage was created, you remember, because Adam was lonely. There was no one for him. In glory, you'll never be lonely. The thing that makes us lonely, the thing that separates us in terms of relationships, is our sin. The fact that we can't fully trust one another, that people lie. They talk behind one another's backs. We can't trust that when we tell a secret that we'll be kept in secret. We hurt each other, sometimes physically, sometimes emotionally. But not so in glory. When we're raised to newness of life, there will be no more sin. And the resurrection life that we will enjoy is the kind of life in which relationships are set right and made perfect. I think the resurrection of Jesus is a signpost to that for us. God is going to make a world in which we are able to receive and return love as He intended it. You all want to embrace the people that you love, don't you? I remember being in Ukraine for a mission trip for 10 days. It was a wonderful 
experience. I loved being there, loved the work that I was doing. But I missed my family. I thought about them all the time. And I can remember coming back, and when we landed at the airport in Charlotte, could you imagine if I walked down the runway there and I saw my family before me and I just said, Hi, how you doing? And that was it. No. I wanted to run and grab my children and embrace my wife and give her a kiss. It's who we're made to be. We're physical creatures. We, we communicate and we receive love that way by, by touching one another, hugging one another, showing affection for one another. You remember the old sort of corny movie, Ghost, from the 1980s? I don't know if you recall it or not. Probably not since it wasn't worth really remembering anyway. But the plot of the movie is this. A man is murdered. And the viewpoint of the writer is that the afterlife is some sort of a spiritual existence. And so he becomes a spirit. And his purpose is to hang around the earth as we know it today until he helps solve the mystery of his murder. And the most frustrating thing to him in the movie is the fact, not that he was killed, but he can no longer touch and embrace his wife. He tries to grab hold of her and he just flows right through her. Friends, that's not what we were made for. What we long for is one day when we are raised in glory is to be able to embrace the people that we love the most. And not just embrace our friends and our family to be able to embrace the Lord Jesus too. After all, He'll be there. Already raised. Waiting. Saying, come on. Come be with me. That's the hope that we have. If that's our hope for the future, we want to live for Jesus now. We want to do everything that we can to strive now for what is to come in glory so that we are prepared. So that as one friend of mine always said, step lightly into glory. Isn't that what you want? Let's live for it today. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have not left us in the dark, but You've given us some sense of what we can expect. For we know that the resurrection of Jesus is just a foretaste, the first fruits of what is to come. Now, in fact, as we look at His incarnation, His life and ministry among us, it gives new meaning to it. He came in part to be our representative on the cross, but also by doing so to then lead us into a resurrected life in which we will enjoy you and one another for all of eternity. Lord, we pray that you would help us to work, to labor for that day, trusting that everything that we do in this life for your glory is not in vain, but is used by the master builder to rebuild his creation and indeed our very bodies. Lord, we come to you and we pray that you would be with us. In Jesus' name, amen.